Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. Few groups involved in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict are as scrutinized as the Jewish settlers of Judea and Samaria, often derided as nothing but bigoted colonialists or religious fanatics. But is this the whole story? With me to discuss this fascinating and maddening topic is Dr. Nehemia Stern, a religious anthropologist at, aptly enough, Ariel University of Samaria. Dr. Stern, welcome. Thank you very much, Avi. Great to be here. Thank you for coming. I should add a caveat before we even begin here that this podcast and interview is not meant to take a side specifically on being pro or anti-settler. My aim is that whether or not you think the settlers should stay where they are or whether they should be thrown out on their ear, you will nevertheless come away learning something about this group and coming away with a deeper understanding of one of the important pieces to the puzzle to this conflict. With that caveat in place, let us start from the beginning. Dr. Stern, what is anthropology and how is it distinct from, say, standard sociology or economic behavioral studies? Well, first of all, thank you very much, Avi. And uh, like I tell my students, if you call me doctor one more time, <laughs> I, I'll fail you. Um, uh, that's a great question. People have, I probably have been asking this question since about um, 1897, right? What's the difference between anthropology and um, um, sociology? Um, uh, anthropology just basically is the study of man, or nowadays probably the study of um, um, humanity, where sociology is the study of um, um, society, right? So um, those two things, those two concepts um, overlap, man and society, man lives within society, but they're also very um, um, different, right? Um, I would say that anthropology at its basic focus is, is a really supremely and primarily interested in humanity, in the human experience, right? From the individual to the group, but in the human experience. So, um, sociology, at its very basic level, is fundamentally interested in um, the experience of society as a whole. Um, so, um, uh, sociology assumes that there is a concept called um, um, society. For anthropologists, I think you need to um, improve that. Um, another difference is uh, is um, is um, historical. Um, so historically, um, anthropologists have generally been interested in societies who were quote unquote um, um, primitive, who lived far away from us, and who live lives very, very different from, um, from Western um, uh, city folk. Whereas sociology was the opposite. Historically, they were very interested in modern, contemporary forms of, um, of society, in urbanization, in city life. And that's not to say that anthropologists aren't interested in that field, but historically, generally. Generally speaking, historically, Anthropology has been focused on participant observation, in actually going to these far out 
um, uh, places and uh, communities and um, um, living with the um, uh, people there. And historically, generally speaking, sociology hasn't been so interested, hasn't been so focused on that um, a methodology. Now, of course, there are plenty of sociologists that do ethnography, that do participant observation. So there's a strong overlap, but historically, these are the differences. Um, in an Israeli university, by the way, it, um, the, how, how Israel organizes it is very different from how, let's say, it's organized in the United States. In the United States, anthropology and sociology are two different departments with two different faculties, sometimes existing on two different sides of, um, of campus. The two faculties may not even know each other, right? Um, in Israel, most of the departments, except for in Haifa, are anthropology and sociology. So they sit together, and that's where you really see what the um, differences are. And, and there are um, deep differences in how people think, and how they work, and how they write. Um, yeah. Fascinating stuff. So while you're talking about the experience of men and being part of a group that I guess is separate from the general mainstream, you yourself are politically more towards the right. You are more, I wouldn't say conservative, but certainly heterodox. Rather than talk, rather than ask the que question where, how is it, how are you suffering so badly and so on and so forth, let me, let me reverse it and turn it into a more optimistic direction. In your experience working in the field of anthropology and having no doubt encountered at least some of your, uh, some of your people out in the wild, what do you think uh, people from a more politically or philosophically conservative bent or people from a religious background, what do you think they contribute to the field of anthropology that people with, I guess, more, a, more secular, more liberal, more progressive uh, worldview might miss out on? First of all, Avi, why did you out me? No one was supposed to know that I was conservative, right? <laughs> I mean, I tried to keep this hidden for so long. <laughs> um, uh, that's a great question. What we add? Um, well, many people would say that uh, we don't add much. That we add, or that we may be, that we may even add something um, um, negative to the uh, field. Um, but I would 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 say that first of all, the field of anthropology as it is today is heavily um, politicized. With many anthropologists, especially in the United States. Um, who um, believe or work under the assumption that their job is political. That it's, that it's very difficult to near impossible to separate one's political um, uh, beliefs and persuasions and, and how one thinks politically and acts politically from one's research. Um, 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 I've been so, so much in even in anthropology meetings where it was said as such that that people said that, like that, um, that uh, I don't think we should be separating um, um, our politics from our research. What kind of research is that? And to be honest, that's a very uh, um, persuasive kind of argument. That's a very tempting kind of argument, right? That if you really see an injustice um, um, in the world, well, why shouldn't academics say something about it from their perspective as? And academic. I think what conservatives, uh, what conservative academics add to the softer social sciences or to the um, um, humanities is this idea that there's a private personal space 
right? There's a private personal space where the individual scholar can have their own political ideas, can have their own social ideas, and that's somewhat separate. That, that can be separate, that ought to be separate from the kinds of research um, um, that they do. And, that, and, and that's not to say that one's personal research or one's personal outlook is automatically, um, will, will automatically not be influenced by one's politics. Of course it will be influenced, but we believe, uh, I think, that conservative scholars um, uh, believe that it's possible to minimize one's political bias and just do um, a research. What, what, what religious scholars offer to anthropology, well, we have to go back a little, right? Um, anthropology, um, one of my advisors once said, and I won't quote his name because maybe he doesn't agree with this, right? But um, he once told me, and I remember it, anthropology is a very secular and secularizing field, right? If you believe that all cultural output, that all cultural outcomes, all cultural paradigms are relative, they're all equal, and that one is no better than the um, um, worst. Then, then, then one is no better than um, uh, than um, uh, the other. That's a very kind of um, equalizing field. Um, whereas religious scholars um, can respect that, but they also have their own religious uh, perspectives, and they can look at cultural phenomena from a uh, from a different kind of um, uh, perspective. So for example, um, most anthropologists, the very classical anthropological approach to let's say, um, to religious um, uh, phenomena, is to always reduce the religious phenomena to something else, right? So um, uh, for example, um, uh, uh, religious practices in in um, uh, poor neighborhoods, right? Why do why people who are economically on the periphery of a society or like um, economically poor? Why do they sometimes exhibit very uh, strong um, uh, religious practices and um, and um, uh, beliefs? So the anthropologists will always connect it to right. They'll always say, oh, the religion comes as a way to overcome one's peripheral um, um, status. Whereas I think the religious anthropologist, or the anthropologist who comes to the field from a, um, from a different kind of perspective, sees in the, the sees in the ideology of people, sees in people's ideology, sees in people's religion, um, uh, meaning unto itself. There, it's possible to study the religious experience as a religious experience um, without, uh, without uh, reducing it to something else, to poverty, to, to, to power, right? So many anthropologists look at the world as if, as if there are opposing forces, the powerful versus the um, um, powerless. And if they only uncover what the secret layers of power are, they can heal the world of all its ills, right? So, all of human society is run by differences within um, uh, power, right? I think conservative and religious anthropologists would say, ho, ho, hold on, one moment. Let's take a look at this. Let's take what people say seriously. Um, that's what I think a major difference. That's what I think a major difference is, and something which we can offer the discipline if they would only wish to listen. Um,
Well, that's a great explanation. And uh, for me, at least, when you talk about uh, anthropology being a secular era, secularizing, um, religions uh, traditionally are fascinated, at least the religions I'm familiar with, are traditionally fascinated with difference. They're often talking about the distinguishing. But that doesn't make us any less fascinated with various subjects and various issues. So I think perhaps one can go from a different direction. While the secular and the secularizing say everything's the same, we could say, no, everything's, these things are different, and that's part of what makes it cool. Right, right. And, and, and I think that's a, very part, that's a very important part of cultural um, um, relativism. And I think sometimes that aspect is um, um, lost, to, to appreciate difference for difference's sake. Um, um, and um, there's a difference between appreciating difference for difference's sake and at a certain point saying, this is different, but it's also wrong. But it's also not right. There's something missing about this, right? And I think it's possible to say that without being political, right? I think it's possible to make an analytic, an analytical argument for that without being um, uh, political. So for example, um, Wow, uh, a, a great example would be how anthropologists saw uh, suicide bombings in like the early 2000s, right? You had many anthropologists writing God knows how many articles trying to understand the um, um, suicide bomber, right? Um, well, I think it's a good thing to try to understand a suicide bomber, but that doesn't take away from the idea that, that yeah, you can criticize that as well, right? Um, with, and, and you could do it in such a way that, that is not overly political, that still tries to separate one's own personal beliefs from the field. Was this the approach you generally tried to take while you uh, studied and I'm assuming continue in some way to study settlers? Yeah, I, I try to do it. Um, um, anthropologists have this technical term which they use called uh, reflexivity. Right, reflexivity is a methodological idea. It's the idea that one's own perspectives will always influence how one thinks about another culture, and that one's presence will always influence another culture, right? So, or another society, or another um, a community. So, so for example, just the fact of the anthropologist being in a room will change how people interact with each other. The way anthropologists um, get around this problem is that in their writing, they try to signify where their own personal beliefs or where their own presence might impact a uh, might impact the study um, in and of itself. Some anthropologists take this to the extreme, where most of their work is just about themselves. Some anthropologists take it to a different kind of extreme, where where they really just talk about politics, where they really just talk about their own political um, persuasions. What I try to do, and I know it's perfect, I don't have a tenure track job, I'm not a genius, right? I'm no one. What I try to do is, whenever I see myself criticizing what I see in the field, I always try to ask myself, why exactly am I criticizing this, right? How is my own perspective um, um, contributing to how I um, um, criticize that? And I try to include that within my um, um, writing. And I do see many things which I fundamentally, personally, I, 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 um, I disagree with, but it's still important, I think, to try and grapple with it on their own terms. Okay, so while we're on the topic of, uh, let's use that as a segue into the main uh, subject, 
a lot of people in both the popular imagination and even in the scholarly world view uh, Jews living across the Green Line as a single cohesive group. But the truth is, is that while that may have been true in the beginning, and even then I'm not so sure, today, uh, if you take a look at voting records, if you take a look at population statistics, um, uh, the, the po- you call it, the, call it roughly the settler population, is split three ways. There are, it's a third ultra-Orthodox who live in places like Betar and Modin Elite. You have people who are roughly secular and traditional who live in places like Ariel and others. And you have the national religious who are traditionally more or less identified with the settler population. But even among them, you have different levels. Not everybody are the very um, fiery religious people of Yitzhar. A lot of them are standard bourgeois uh, religious Jews, not necessarily uh, all that excited about all that uh, uh, in, this, in the way we might think. So let me split the question into two. First, given this, can we still say that there is a model of a settler that's identifiable and that we can call settler as opposed to the rest of the population? Or should we just call them, call just everybody across the Green Line a settler? And two, what exact, how exactly could I identify that model of a settler today? This is a very important question and something which I was trying to grapple with some from my days in um, um, graduate school. First of all, from a very basic level, yeah, I think it's definitely possible to say that anyone who lives west or anyone who lives east of the Green Line is a settler. So that could be someone who lives in Itzhar, someone who lives in Afra, someone who rents a shack in um, um, Latrun in the true salient, that's a quote-unquote um, um, settler. But I think the question um, is deeper than that, right? The question is, is it truly really possible to separate the settler population from Israel proper, from just regular, everyday, um, everyday Israelis? Um, most of the academic research on settlers in the West Bank sees them maybe not as one cohesive group, but definitely as one group of settlers. And so when, it, when anthropologists or sociologists or political scientists, or even I guess, um, um, I guess economists or psychologists want to study settlers, they go east of the green line and they study settlers. But that leaves out an entire level of experience. For example, what do you do about the people who, um, like myself, right, who may live in um, um, Petachikva, but travel to these settlements every single day, sometimes twice a day, right? Are those people settlers? Or what do you do about the people who live in a settlement but work in um, um, Tel Aviv? Are they half settlers? What do you do about children of, um, of settlers who rent, who might live in a frat but rent in um, um, Jerusalem? Are they a quarter of a settler? So is it really possible to, to study the settler movement, movement, quote unquote, in um, in opposition to everything else that's going on within Israeli society. Um, and I'm not sure it's possible. This is a fundamental disagreement with I ha- which I have with most of the social scientific literature on the settlements, is that they all just look at the settlements. 
what I tried to do in my dissertation, in my articles, I still haven't gotten the book out, um, which I probably failed um, in a certain sense, is to look at religious Zionism. Right? I, wanted to, I, I went to look at religious Zionism. And yes, I know many settlers aren't religious Zionists. I know that, right? But I wanted to look at a religious phenomena called religious Zionism and to see how it expressed itself in Mitzar, in Efrat, in, um, in Hebron, but also in Haifa, but also in Tel Aviv, also in um, um, Jerusalem, right? Um, how it expressed itself in different ways, and in that we tried to get around this paradigm of the settler versus everyone else. And by the way, this, um, this also makes it, by, by separating the settler from all the rest of Israeli anthropology, from all the rest of Israeli um, society, it, it also makes it very easy for anthropologists and for sociologists to turn the settler into this uh, uh, fic fictitious image almost, right? To make, to turn them into something, um, um, into almost a straw man, right? Um, it makes it very easy when you, when you separate them from everything else that's going on within Israel society. And that's part of the problem with academia. Okay, so why don't we take the opportunity to try and correct that a bit here? Why don't you try as briefly as you possibly can for lay audience, explain to us what religious Zionism is broadly speaking and what it means uh, for the religious Zionist population as a whole, and especially those who live across the Green Line. Oh, you just put me on the hot seat and turn on the plane. Uh, <laughs> we do that sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's very long. It's about maybe you know, someone could write books on this, right? People have written books on this. Um, I would say that um, in Israel, religious Zionism manifests itself in two distinct kind of ways. One way is this idea that um, Zionism is sort of a complement to one's religion. That one can be religious, and one can also be a, um, a Zionist. One can be religious, and one can also think that Jews need a safe haven, a place to call home, a place with a strong army, um, a strong economy. Um, and, and while I believe in that, one also prays, one also davens, one also gives charity, one also is pious, right? But those two aren't exactly fundamentally connected, right? And in this sense, the state of Israel for the religious individual comes to really offer uh, security, that there is a religious value to security. And almost one could say that there's a religious value to Jewish power. Jewish power makes security, right? There's a, there's a fundamental religious value to power, right? The second kind of Israeli religious Zionism sees something a lot much more deeper within the Zionist enterprise. Sees the Zionist enterprise as expressing fundamentally who the Jew is, who the, the soul of the Jew. It sees the Zionist enterprise as also rectifying not just the individual Jew, but also Jewish history and Jewish destiny. Rectifying what went wrong when Jews were exiled from their land 2,000 years ago, history went off course. And they see in the return of the Jewish people to their land a rectification of that history. A rectification of the history of the Jewish people, but not just of the Jewish people, of the world in itself. That the world will be set right when the Jewish people have returned to their land. 
And this is a diff this is a very different kind of religious sign of religious Zionism. For them, this kind of religious Zionism, um, the idea that Jews are secure and safe and a strong army and Jewish power, all of that is good. But that's not fundamentally what Zionism is about. The Zionism is about the soul of the Jewish people, the individual Jew, as well as the uh, people as a whole. Um, 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 the second kind of religious Zionism was popularized by Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cohen Cook, the first chief rabbi of um, a British mandatory Palestine. He passed away in 1935. And his son, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook, who was widely seen as the theological um, founder or underpinning of the um, of the settler movement, but there are but there are other settlers. There are other religious Zionists as well within within Israel who take a fundamentally different. We take the first approach that Zionism and religion complement one another, but aren't necessarily fundamentally um, attached to one another, and that Zionism is ultimately about security, Jewish power. And that's like another kind of uh, Zionism, of, um, of religious Zionism. And we see the, these two expressions popping up in different ways. And we see people rebelling against these two kinds of expressions of Zionism um, in um, um, different ways. Um, uh, uh, so for example, um, in my own research, I, I, I thought, I think, that the phenomena of the hilltop youth, uh, um, uh, uh, youth who are violent um, on the West Bank, um, is, is currently more connected to a, to, to a rebellion against this idea that, that there's one line to history and the state of Israel is the symbol of the Jewish return to history. And for them, what they want to say is that, no, no, the individual is important. It's my land. The, the, the fact that the state of Israel can tell me where to live and where not to live, the state of Israel is like a holy thing. I mean, it's only holy in so much as it allows the individual Jew to express his desire to live wherever he wants or wherever she wants. Um, and we see this kind of rebellion against these classical forms of religious Zionism here within Israel. And I think, by the way, I'm sorry, I keep on going on and on, but, uh, but many anthropologists, many social scientists have missed this, um, I think, um, haven't been sensitive enough to the religious tensions that exist within religious Zionism and within the settlement movement that they sort of have, have missed this, this point of rebellion against a political and theological um, ideology. Um. Well, that, uh, that certainly accords with, um, I spent a lot of time uh, studying on my own religious Zionist ideology, and it always seems to have had both small c conservative uh, tendencies alongside sort of revolutionary tendencies. You're getting into a big topic, um, <laughs> I know. Um, and on the one hand, like you said, you have the people who are you know, this is just an extension of Zionism, this is an extension of the state of Israel, this is security. On the other hand, there are the people who are, I remember, there are people who are revolutionary even when it comes to religion. I remember once I spoke with someone who I'm pretty sure was a settler who they were talking about um, going back 
almost like bypassing all the traditional sources, going back straight to the Mishnah, or some people think go back straight to the Bible or go back straight to the Talmud. In other words, there there are elements in this this religious Zionism which many standard religious people would you know find very scary, honestly. There are elements of the Cookus uh, religious Zionism which are progressive, which are progressive in the big P, right, in the socialist sense, right. right? This idea that history has a course, that history went off track, it has a course, that we know what the end of history is, and maybe, just maybe, if the time is right, we could speed it up. What does that sound like? Sounds very Marxian. It is Marxian. It's Marxist. Right? right. Um, and is it any coincidence then that uh, that uh, Rabbi Cook felt such simpatico with like the socialist um, um, pioneers that it was so easy to make political coalitions between between religious Zionists and these socialist um, uh, pioneers? Um, uh, um, and, uh, not just that, but um, the value, the revolutionary value of war that uh, Rabbi Cook writes about World War One, for example, and, and he writes this just like Woodrow Wilson would write. He said that this is the war and it shakes up all of the old habits of society, all of the evil regimes. It shakes it up. It cleans it out. All of the death that we see going around us within the trenches of, um, of Western Europe and of, um, um, and of Eastern Europe, all that tragedy is shaking up world history in a revolutionary sense. And, and from this, we can feel the messianic tremors Right? This is a progressive ideology. Um, and, and, it, and it, just like Marxists thought, it, it, unevenly, it, um, it unevenly balances between apocalypse and slow movements through history. Um, um, this kind of Zionism, contrary to what many people might, um, might, uh, might instinctively um, uh, um, uh, believe is not conservative. It's a very left-wing, very progressive kind of Zionism. There's something very, um, it matches um, each other. This idea of Israel as a centralized state that, that will lead, that will change the Jew um, fundamentally through history to the end of times is is very similar to this Cookist idea that the Jewish return to the land will will end not just the like the like individual Jewish um, yearning for a homeland, but the wider yearning of a people to return to its historical roots. Um, and by the way, this this idea that that suddenly um, after two after hundreds and hundreds, maybe a thousand years of Jews, let's say, studying the uh, Jewish. Um, um, forcing the, the Jewish interpreters of, of the Bible, studying the midrashic um, elements to interpret the Bible, to suddenly jump to looking at the Bible itself, that's a revolutionary idea. That, that's a revolutionary move almost. That's not a conservative move. That's a revolutionary move. So taking that into account, taking the, the various forces within this most ideological part of the settlers. Uh, this question is unavoidable. Where do the Palestinians 
not just the Israeli Arab citizens, but especially those those Palestinians who live on the West Bank and perhaps still thinking about the Gaza Strip, where do they fit in to this messianic, revolutionary, uh, deeply religious fervor? Is are is there one view? Is there a range of views? Um, is it even discussed all that often, or is it, or are they just kind of they try to think of them out of sight, out of mind? We only focus on the land. So here, I think just on a factual basis, I think there's a range of views that matches the range of people, right? If you ask like 100 people, they'll give you 100 different answers, right? And I think all of this just points to the idea, and and like and and here. I'm saying something which is very much against my own um, political uh, persuasions and, and uh, what I think might be right and proper. Um, it's that, um, and my own, like, also, I, I have to say, my own instinctive uh, sympathies for, for, for Israeli um, uh, religious Zionism. But I don't think that Palestinians fit into this, to this narrative. Certainly not in the cooking narrative, in the first narrative, where it's just a matter of Jewish security and of the Jewish like safety, and to find a national home, and you can be religious and you can be a nationalist, and those two don't contradict, but they also don't um, they also don't meld together. Um, I think that leaves somewhat more room for for the Palestinian um, presence, because after all, a Jewish polity can make peace with Palestinians, they can make war with Palestinians, they can. You can you can you can have economic relations, right? Um, uh, uh, and uh, it's no, uh, and in that sense, I don't think it's a coincidence that the people who subscribe to, that the kinds of settlers who subscribe to the first kind of idea of Zionism, that's really a matter of power and security, um, of uh, the Jews returning, you know, to find a safe haven, um, um, are able to more easily make political concessions to the Palestinian um, to the Palestinian authorities. So, for example, Jews in Gush Etzion, in in Shfud, in like Efrat, these are, that's where you might really find people who who back when Oslo was was uh, popular, right? Bite my tongue, right? But back when Oslo was uh, popular, that's where you could really find those people who said that listen, if the army and if the political leadership and if all the security um, a smart strategist say that it's possible to give up this piece of land and have peace. Who, who are we to say no, right? Um, uh, but for the cookie model, right? For for the second model, where there's a deep, um, essential kind of religious significance to to uh, Zionism, historical significance. I don't think there's room for Palestinians um, in that theological political drama. In the, the in the theological political drama of the Jewish people, I don't think there's room for, for uh, Palestinians, um, and that and uh, this leads to problems. Okay, uh, I'm guessing that this uh, this this substantial difference expresses itself in general individual attitudes uh, towards Palestinians, or does that or do, or do the two not necessarily mesh? I don't think the two necessarily. I'm talking more about larger movements and larger thought processes. I'm sure you can find individual people who go one way or who go the other or who are unique in their own thinking. After all, we're just humans, right? And and, and if anything, that's what anthropology um, is supposed to respect, that the individual, that uh, individual uniqueness, right? 
So I'm sure you can find individuals in various places who hold all who hold a slew of 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 opinions and which are hard to categorize into wings. Right? But if we're looking at it generally speaking, in the broader view, I think these are the general tendencies of a contemporary religious Zionism vis-a-vis the political situation vis-a-vis the Palestinians. Okay. Now that we've talked about, again, the most ideological core, um, given what experience you've had with the other parts of the people who live over the Green Line, would you say that any of them have, even if not from the beginning, adopted through osmosis some form of one or some form or some part of one or these two one of these two approaches, especially the first one? Right. So yeah, so I, I think you have certain settlements that have adopted throughout not necessarily throughout through osmosis, right? Um, uh, uh, students of Rabbi Salvechuk. Right, settled in a specific place, right, and so there you find uh, south of Jerusalem in the um, um, Gush Etzion block, and so there you find this idea that 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 there might be that th- this idea that the state as a state is a sacred phenomenon, is a phenomenon of sanctity, right, that they put some kind of question to that, um, uh, and there are other areas. Um, West Bank, where it's Kokos right? where where rabbis who studied in the Kazaram, who were very who were very attached to that, happened to settle. Basically speaking, the Kokos model has uh, has won the like argument, right? If there was ever an argument between between these two models of Zionism, the Kokos model has uh, has uh, taken the um, um, cake, right? Um, and uh, now we see a, a rebellion. Against the against these against this idea of of a of a centralized political entity and a centralized religious entity as well, right? That the state of Israel represents like the entire Jewish people returning to an entire Jewish essence, right? And some people may look at this and say, "Wait a second, where do I fit in? Where where does my where do my individual passions and fears and desires and loves where does that fit in?" and Perhaps a Kokos rabbi would say, it's important, your individual passions are important insofar as they serve the Jewish people. Right? Rabbi Cook always called himself the Evet Hashem. Right? Well, what if I just want to be an like, Evet to myself, a servant to myself, right? to find myself? And I think you have this kind of like, theological rebellion. Lots of people say, lots of scholars say that the phenomena of the Hilltop youth is a, um, just youth who, you know, the classic, uh, youthful tensions that you have within society, right, um, are exhibited in the settlements in this kind of violent way. And that could be true, right? The classic uh, rebellion against the bourgeoisie parents, right? That could be true, right? But there's also this rebellion against a theological principle, against a theological political outlook that people take in either by osmosis or more intently. Okay. How's about say the people who come to learn by you in Ariel University? Does any do any of them like the, by the very fact that they're coming to learn in the middle in the middle of the territories? Uh, does anybody ever in your experience ever not through indoctrination obviously, but just picking up some of the atmosphere of what it's like? 
So I would say no. I would say people think of Ariel, people imagine Ariel University as being any other kind of uh, university that, um, that attracts all kinds of students, right? Students on the periphery of Israeli society, um, students who just like perhaps the time of their classes works out for them, right? Students who, who this is where they could um, um, get into, but like any normal college, any normal um, um, university, and, and it's something very strange, right? So every day I get to work, we have a, uh, there's our, there are, uh, there are ride-sharing groups on WhatsApp. So every day I get a ride with someone else on, um, on WhatsApp. Now, we ride through checkpoints, right? We ride through the West Bank, we ride past some Palestinian villages on Route 5. Not a lot, because Route 5 really doesn't go through many Palestinian villages, but we drive there, and very rarely do people mention it, right? Very rarely do people mention, wow, this is something, you know, we're actually going to what really is like the center of the West Bank. It's a few kilometers south of uh, Shechem, south of um, um, Nablus, right? I mean, it's not, uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> it's not Boston, you know? <laughs> and very rarely do people mention it. Um, um, other anthropologists have noticed this kind of phenomena, that you have like, you have, for example, settlers who live just just on the east side of the um, Green Line, who never mention the uh, Green Line, who see like the wall that separates right the West Bank from from Israel proper, the security wall, and who never mention it, who never seem to even notice it, right? And and this is something with, with, which anthropologists have um, noticed. It's something which they're trying to understand. Uh, but I've noticed it myself that in the university itself, there's very little um, understanding that this is a university in Samaria, right? University inside this um, this uh, tempest in a teapot, right? When, when when you go there, it's just like any normal, like um, any other kind of um, um, university or any other kind of institution of higher learning, right? Which is strange, right? It is strange, but it, it does tie in nicely with what you're saying and what you're describing about how how the people, how the, both the territories and the people living over the Green Line, on the one hand, they're kind of detached from the rest of the country. On the other hand, as you described, at least when it comes to Ariel, and I'm sure other parts of the country feel like, no, they're just naturally just part Part, they're naturally connected places like Ariel, places like Malé, Domim, uh, in places like Gush Etzion in some ways. Right. So, so just shows you that how important it is to study and how important it is to understand the nuances, but yeah. also to study these things in depth. Now, now, one can argue that this lack of reflexive thinking is problematic, right? That, you know, students should know where they're studying, right? They should know that, you know, where they're driving, you know, may not exactly be like driving through Boston, right? Um, the fact that they don't, or that they don't mention it all the time, and, and even when things happen, right, um, uh, um, is interesting, it's a little bit worrisome, right? Um, that, that perhaps we're not thinking too deeply about what we're doing here and, and you know what we're supposed to be doing here and you know things like that. I have a question. 
Are there any, is there any significant number of uh, Israeli, Arab, or Palestinian uh, student body within the university? I don't know numbers, but there are. There are. There are Israeli Arabs who go to Ariel. Are they settlers? Good question. I don't know. Do you tell me? So once I wrote a review of a book, and um, on Facebook, the author of the book said, oh, it's interesting to see what a, what a settler thinks of my book. So I wrote back on Facebook, I was like, I live in Petah Tikva, I, I work in Ariel. If, if that makes me a settler, maybe, but I work in Petah Tikva. And I didn't write this, but I was thinking, I have a few Arab students, just like me, they travel to, to Ariel from, from Israel proper. Are they settlers? That's the problem with marking off an entire group of people as settlers without taking into the without taking into the wider context of Israel itself. So, for people who want to know more and to want to delve more, again, as adding with my with my caveat at the beginning of the interview, without having to without feeling forced to you know change their opinion on what should be the ultimate political fate of the settlers, someone wants to learn more. Where do they go? Where do they go? Um, again, on Hatsi, I have to remember all of the um, um, names. Not, not all of them, but you know, just a few to start with. So there is a great book by last I forgot sir, um, Avi Ezeravitsky, published in 1996. Excellent book. It really explains the theology of uh, the Cookist forms of um, uh, religious Zionism. Um, um, Arthur Green, I want to say. Hertzberg, no, Arthur Hertzberg, his classic book, The Zionist Idea, which, which, um, which they recently published a different version of The Zionist Idea with different authors, but this classic book, The Zionist Idea, the introduction is the best introduction to Zionist thought that I've ever read. Now, Arthur Hertzberg was on the left, very much politically so. From his um, edited volume, he completely really left out right-wing a revisionist religious Zionism. Even so, the introduction is the best introduction that one could read about um, uh, religious Zionism. Um, there's a professor at Tel Aviv University, Michal Kravaltovi. She recently wrote a book um, about conversion within the state of Israel, where she specifically focuses on, on uh, religious Zionist rabbinic figures who have tried to take control of this of the Israeli conversion program. And there you really see a look at religious Zionism in Israel and in the territories and in the settlements that doesn't um, bracket out the settlements, but looks at religious Zionism as a, um, as a totality through this idea of um, uh, Jewish, of Jewish um, uh, conversion. Uh, there have been other uh, uh, articles and uh, books. One that comes to mind is uh, Joyce Dalsheim. She wrote a book about the settlements in the Gaza Strip right before they were evacuated. How do you spell that? Uh, G uh, Dalsheim. Her last name is D-A-L-S-H-E-I-M. Okay. Um, now, of course, she comes from it from a particular perspective, right? Um, but taking that, um, but taking that into account, it's still a very important book on a group of settlements that uh, that uh, one doesn't that, that don't that don't exist anymore, right? 
Mm -hmm. um, she also has many articles which, which are very smart. She has very smart articles. Um, uh, but yeah, there, there's are, there are several places to, uh, to uh, look. There's an anthropologist in Binghamton University, uh, Asaf Harel. He also writes about this um, a phenomena as well, about Jewish messianism, Jewish power, uh, the settlements. But then again, many of these works really bracket out these, set, these settlers from the rest of Israeli uh, society. Yeah. And of course, there's your work. And there's also my work. I'm a very humble individual. Feel free to um, Google my name. Yeah, it's <laughs> available at uh, academia.edu. Nehemia. Thank you very much for coming on. It's Thank been a very, very informative time. It's uh, been a pleasure. Same here.